The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 8-10, through 10, um, and then we'll skip around a little bit. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, George. Well, um, some of you may know that um, years ago, uh, five now, and uh, even then some, uh, when we first moved here, what brought us, uh, my wife and I, to uh, Nashville was I was the RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt. And uh, as campus ministry, if you are unfamiliar with it and um, love my years there, I spent 10 years there doing that. Uh, from 2005 and then to 15. And um, one of the things that, you know, as I was studying and learning the kind of the culture of campus life, not just Vanderbilt, but um, just kind of immersing myself in it. And that's kind of one of the things you do as a campus minister. You, you kind of learn the campus you're in. That's kind of your city, that microcosm, right? Um, was the amount, and particularly at Vanderbilt, but I know across the country, um, the, the rigors of student life. And uh, about halfway through my, <clears throat> my time at Vanderbilt, we decided to do something at the end of the year uh, called Senior Night. Now, some of you may have done this before at your respective campuses or so, but there's this thing called Senior Night that we began, and because I realized, um, you know what, we, we're so used to, like, criticism how, how that, you know, we use to, like, fuel us? You know, what do I critique? What do I get better at? What, what, when do we talk about the things that we're loved for or affirmed for who we are or where we are? And, you know, I didn't know how it was going to go. Um, <clears throat> could, it, could it be cheesy? Could it be sweet? Uh, so we started it, and year after year when we did this, 
it was just profound. I literally did nothing but just walk in. I set the tone. I said how much I love them. And I said, this is a time for y'all to speak to one another. And people would just stand up and speak to the seniors and the seniors would speak to one another about just what, what they meant to each other. And things that you could see in their eyes it totally caught them off guard because they weren't ready for, they weren't think, maybe they thought, oh yeah, we're good friends, but they would say characteristics or, or an event or something that would catch them and hook them. And you could see tears in their eyes or just the smile that was just so joyful because they were pointing out something that they didn't see themselves. And the thing that I heard that I will never forget, that over and over, nearly every year, someone would say to me about it. He said, they would say, I just feel so full. I feel full. What a great description. Not full of myself, not full of how great I am, but just so full and loved. You know, what if people encountered... um, our church, the church, you as a Christian, and they walked away just feeling full. Not taken, not exhausted, full. Just a richness. What if the church exuded that fullness? What if Music Row in and of itself didn't exist just for, you know, celebration year by year, but we really want those around us to see and experience a fullness in those, maybe you're here this morning, maybe this is your time back into the church, maybe you're exploring Christianity again, maybe you're asking questions, maybe you're new, just thinking about new churches. What is it like to experience a fullness and to actually express that fullness so much so in a city and in a country and in a world that really doesn't feel full? Isn't that what the church is supposed to do? You know, when Paul wrote this letter of 2 Timothy, he wrote a letter to an older minister, older pastor writing to a younger pastor. And the language of 2 Timothy, more than others, is written in like a last will and testament. This is actually one of his last letters that he wrote. You can see the language of fullness in it. There's this language of love and of keeping and kind of, in the midst of struggle and strife, he's obviously writing about things, right? I mean, even last week, and I joked, tune in for this week, uh, last week was what tears down. And the metaphor used often of the church, uh, one of those metaphors is the body. And Paul used the metaphor of gangrene, that, that, that what tears down is like gangrene. It takes the life out. It ruins the church, And it's a perfect illustration. This week, what we're talking about is what contend for what builds up. What builds up the church? And the metaphor often used, another one, is a building. Literally a structure. Not that we meet in a building, but a building. That we, as the church, are considered a building. And there are tons of architectural terms in this. Engineer, Especially if you're an engineer, construction. I know we have a lot of people in that industry here. This is like your kind of passage right here, right? Because what builds up the church, this kind of language, is so perfectly put that it is to build up in love. It's not just a body, it's a healthy body. It's a healthy building. It's It's a place that works together to show the fullness, not just that we have, what we are, that we exist, but a fullness of our relationship to Jesus Christ. That's the fullness. 
that, that, that it is deep and embedded and great and wonderful. As the great theologian Marin Morris said, right? The bones are good. Right? What are the bones of the church? What is the structure? What, what, we, what is our foundation? Okay? What, what, what really builds us up? Isn't that what we need to look at? So we're going to talk about that today through this in just three, three ways. The characteristics of what builds up in the church. The truth, peace, and maturity. Truth, peace, and maturity. Those three things as we kind of walk through this passage together will work work our way through it. The first thing is truth, that we contend to build up through the truth, that our foundation is on the truth. I don't know if you caught it in here, but the truth, word truth, the word truth is put in there a number of times for a reason. <clears throat> and in our particular context, saying truth or anything absolute truth is you're, you're proclaiming something. I don't know if that upsets you or off puts you, but that's what the Bible is saying, that there is an absolute truth. You know, in the last number of years, <clears throat> many um, thinkers, theologians, philosophers have really looked into the reordering of our society. And one of the things that's been interesting is that we used to have feelings inside that we really felt, that we feel something, but we would always have some sort of mooring or truth outside so that our feelings could be brought out and make in line with that. Okay, if I'm feeling a certain way, gosh, does it mean it's real? Does it mean it's, that's what everything is? And then you'd look outside of you for the truth and make sense of that. Right? You make sense of your feelings. Not that a feeling is nothing, but that you go, okay, is this reality or is this something else? What we've seen in the last number of years is a complete shift of that. Now we hear things, and I brought it up last week. We hear the my truth, right? Those, that kind of language essentially is, is signaling, saying truth now is no longer something out, it's something in. And now most of the things around us are culturally felt, <laughs> culturally felt structures. Things that, wait, wait, does that come in line with my truth? With where I am? And you can see where this goes. I even remember this uh, when I was in college. I had uh, a fraternity brother of mine who really felt strongly that cheating was okay. He felt like cheating was fine. He had a different belief system. He did not have a, a Christian belief system, but he had a belief system because isn't that what it is? A belief system is that very thing, whatever you believe. So he felt that cheating was okay and constantly pressing him on <clears throat> this idea was, okay, how do you make sense of honor system uh, grades? Why should we have grades? Those kind of things. He said, well, this is a culturally structured thing. If I feel as though I need to cheat in order to get to this place, I do what I need to do. Now you see where that, where that heads. Because <laughs> that may be cheating, but you can see, you could take that in a lot of ways. That's truth within. But the, whatever's outside are cultural systems that, that impose on my truth. You could take this further and further and further, even as uh, C.S. Lewis said, then why, if that happens, why should you get mad if somebody cuts you off in a line? Why do you get upset? If those things, evil and good, begin to blend themselves together, where's truth? Where's the mooring? This is, what, this is why so many read this passage and go, why in the world does Paul begin this way? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. 
as preaching the gospel. Is this an older pastor just kind of hanging out and saying, hey, let's talk fun theology. Uh, a lot of uh, commentators read that and go, why would, he, why would he say that to Timothy? Doesn't Timothy know that already? Well, what he's doing is remembering. He's saying, remember in the midst of what culture you're in, that there is a mooring. There is something stable. Hello. There is a, a truth. And it is not just a truth, it's the truth. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy for us, I think, often to read Jesus' name, Jesus Christ, and think that's like his first and last name. Uh, Jesus Christ isn't Jesus, and I know you're laughing, but for some of you, you may not know. I mean, honestly, um, I, and I don't take that for granted, that, that Christ is actually a title, it was a title of Messiah. It meant Jesus, the Messiah, promised one. That there's someone looked for in ancient times. Someone looked for. Now, we, we may not think of Messiahs today, but aren't we looking for that? Why do we have such a superhero embedded in, in culture, right? Because we're looking for someone to rescue us. We're looking for someone to uh, save us. Someone to have us. Someone we can look up to. And I think it's interesting that, that even in this culture, <clears throat> we still want that. We have a mess, Messiah desire. But here, he's, he's drawing it out. That he is Jesus Christ, the promised one who actually addresses our real need. You know, one of the biggest cultural shifts in the centuries was um, the Odyssey. When the Odyssey was written, it was written to... Uh, a group of, of people who believed in the gods, lower G gods, right? The, when that was written, it was, it was undermining the idea that the gods have power. And so it threw them off. And so what's interesting is often the Bible and the Odyssey are the two, two of the oldest books written. And so it's interesting that with the scripture, the Bible, it's saying there isn't anything that can throw him off. As much as you can go into it, Jesus has claimed he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one who has come. And not only that, he's risen from the dead. He's gone actually historically in time and space and addressed the real need that we have. Isn't it death and sin? The idea that sin and death is actually a problem for us. That sin and death are things that need to be addressed. Isn't that our biggest fear? Isn't that the thing we're, we're worried about the most? That this Savior doesn't come with words to comfort us. And here's what the, the truth is, is addressing. It's the fact that people thought in that time that what was being spoken of in that day in the Eph church at Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor, that they missed the resurrection that all the resurrection needed to be was something that is just in your heart. If you just believe it in your heart, if you believe it spiritually, then it doesn't really matter if it's, if it's something that's physical. But you see the problem with that. Then how is our hope real? Is our hope in something that is intangible or does God have to come and address both tangible and intangible? 
by rising from the dead, then we actually don't know if death is actually defeated. See, the truth has to be the truth for us to look at something outside of ourselves when we don't feel like, I don't know if I believe this stuff. Many of you have come. I've felt that way. I mean, can we just be honest? If truth is about my truth, how I feel about this, then when do we know it's actually true? How do we know it actually addresses the real issues, not just in us, but outside us that we see right now? If God doesn't send someone, as he even says here, the third thing, he says the offspring of David, that means you can look in a genealogy and you can find the line where Jesus came from as the promised one, historically, tangibly. Because if Jesus doesn't come historically, what in the world are we really hoping for historically right now in a place and a time where the most polarized division is in our country and world? What addresses the real issues? What does that other than the truth? And notice he says this here, and I love this. Here's one of the architectural terms. My dad's an architect. Obviously, I'm not one because I'm terrible at math, but I'm so thankful for him because thinking about this and thinking about what Paul is trying to get them to see here in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word rightly handling is the word to cut straight. Now they're not sure if, if cut straight, could, Paul kind of left it open. It could have been cut straight on a building, could have been cut straight in a road, could have been cut straight in anything. What it made, made me think of immediately is when I just recently was trying to build something at my home and I got, I drew, you know, I measured, I drew the line and I started sawing and I started going, vroom, vroom. you know, you kind of make that first cut and you're like, man, this is, just feels awesome just to cut this wood. And then all of a sudden I'm halfway through and I'm just veered slightly and I go, no, nah, it's going to be all right. I can try and veer it back. I cut it off and the wood is just like at an angle. So it just has, no, it's useless. I was like, okay, well I started over. So I started to cut again and I just went the other way. See, the pencil drawing is to keep me cutting straight, right? But I'm finding myself just a small degree, very slightly moving the handle, turns those teeth on that saw blade just enough to where it makes the wood at a, at a false angle and it doesn't work. You see why we have the Bible? The Bible isn't just a religious book. It's not a book just to tell you what you're just doing wrong. It's the one who you're supposed to remind you who you're in relationship with. So if you know who has come, if you remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, the one who actually has come, then you're not just trying to cut. You're not looking at the Bible trying to do your best. You're looking at the Bible trying to live out the relationship and you live it in. And it shows you where you are veering, just like any relationship you'd have. If you have a real relationship in your life and you don't have people that are reflecting back to you, hey, this is really off the mark and it really hurts, then do you have a real relationship? Do you have a friendship? Real friends, real relationships show you where you are not cutting straight. That is what the scriptures do. That the Bible is that. This is why we need to be in it. Because it's not just an old book. It's a book 
describing how God has come to his people thousand, over thousands of years in a number of ways and all the same through this promised line of Jesus. That's the truth. And the truth, we contend for that. If we have that, then we can also contend for peace. Our characters, our character should change. You know, if you notice in this passage, just we kind of mentioned this last week, that three times it says quarrelsome. It's a word, it's a thing, means word battles. It means that essentially this, that you take someone's one word and you take it out and you make it everything. And you begin to attack that person based on that word. Did we not have a better illustration of that this week than the debate? Can I just draw it out there? Now, I'm not going to speak on it in the terms of whether you, who you think won. I, I don't, I'm not really interested in that. What made me the saddest about the debate is I could hardly hear what anybody was saying because three men were yelling at each other on the screen. And I want to say this, it's not necessarily that, look at that, that I'm pointing at the debate and thinking that that's, that is merely an illustration of the entirety of what is going on in our country. That is not just those people on that screen, it is us. And the reason that this passage pushes so much against fighting of quarrelsome words, of taking one person, we do this all the time, this is what we do in social media. This is what we do with everyone's words. We take one of their words and we put it in a place so we can demonize or idealize. And that's what we do. But how do we, I I don't know about you, I did not leave watching that or thinking that feeling full. And again, it wasn't because of what I saw. It was because of what it shows me the reality is. Where do we find a fullness? How is the church going to be the church in an age where there is so much, because of the shift of truth, there is deepening polarization, deepening, not just politically, in every way. How are we going to be people that bring peace? Notice the, the, the language here. <clears throat> Look, have nothing to do with fool, verse 23, foolish, ignorant, contra, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I really hope that we have a number of people here that are on both sides of that spectrum politically. I really hope I hope that you're all across the board. But what I hope even more for us is that we don't look to either one of those sides to proclaim the gospel good news for us. That this is the first, I've used this illustration before. I I ran track in college. Um, Whether whether I did it well or not, that's to be determined. But I ran the high hurdles. I did, one of the events I did was called the high hurdles that come this high. And you have to learn which leg you're going over first. And, and, and when you learn what your lead leg is, the leg that goes first over the hurdle, you have somebody come behind you, stand flat-footed, you have somebody come behind you and shove you when you're not ready. And whatever foot goes forward, that's your lead leg and trail leg. I know it sounds simple, but that's typically how it works. 
And here's the question for us. If we're gonna have the characteristic of peace when we are shoved from behind, what is our first foot forward? Is it gonna be from the gospel? Is it gonna be the good news? Are we constantly coming back to what really brings peace? Are we... Are we, is it something else? Is it political? Is it social? Is it your vocation? Is it, I just want to have everything in my little world happy and fine? Or is it the truth that stems and allows us to struggle in the midst of this? And yet, no, we are, we are moored. We are, we are tethered to something that's outside of us that is stronger and isn't based on our feelings or circumstances. Isn't this why Paul says in the very beginning, he says, I am suffering and bound in chains. He's chained as a criminal. And then he goes on to say, but the word of God is not bound, exclamation point. If the word of God is not bound, it's not held back by that. Isn't there something more we should look to for that? G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, uh, he was kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis, if you haven't read his material, he said this about, about this issue and he called it the dislocation of humility. What, what, what is the core of our being a, an instrument, character of peace? He called it dislocation of humility. Just think about that. Something being dislocated. He said this, a man was supposed to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth and this has been exactly reversed. Hear, hear that again. A man was supposed to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And this has been exactly reversed. What if, instead of taking ourselves so seriously, instead of looking to ourselves to be the rock, the steady one, we were willing to doubt ourselves. Could we be wrong? Could we look at ourselves and know that we don't have all the answers. That we don't have to be the one in the middle. That when we celebrate five years, quite honestly, the word of God speaks for itself. That there's one who's spoken over us. To be instruments of peace, we have to know that we've been set apart by a God who's come to get us. It's humility. It's humility. What, what, if you track all the quarrels, all the word fighting, all the things, what are we wanting to do? Put ourselves in the center. We're wanting to win. I'm not just talking about debates. I'm talking about just us, anything. Every relationship you have in life, everything we do, we're wanting to put ourselves in the middle. But what if we're willing to doubt ourselves and know that we need to go back to the thing that's the mirror of who we really are, that shows us who we really are? Because what are we really supposed to fight for? If that's what we're supposed to be, instruments of peace, of wholeness, you know what Paul says here? Here's what we're supposed to be fighting for. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of a truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you realize that the way that we leave people full by the way we treat each other in peace, moored to the truth, is a way that people who may not, and maybe you're here even today and I hope you experience it, 
who may not even know Jesus can leave going, there is something different about that because God even uses the way that we love one another to even open up the door so that they can see and hear the good news. Just by the way we treat each other, just by the gentle way we answer one another, an opponent, God might grant them to a repentance and see their need for him, acknowledging the truth. You see, do you hear how huge that is? You and I are instruments towards that turning for people of, of clearing the vision that may be blurred in people's eyes to see that good news that we believe. So much so that it even says on a, not just a heart level, repentance seeing themselves in a mirror, but a cosmic level. We are fighting against the devil himself. And I, I know some of you are like, he said it, there it is. But you realize the ancients actually believed Paul believed that it's not just an evil in us, there's an evil outside of us, and we all know that it's true. We're seeing it. It's not hard to see. It's everywhere. We're not just fighting something in us, we're fighting something outside of us. We're fighting on a cosmic level. That's where our efforts should be, is fighting for people to turn to God fighting for people to have sober, as that says, sober vision to see themselves so that they are not captivated by sin and by the devil, by the one who clouds vision. It's to drive us to a deep maturity. It's to drive us to a deep maturity. And I think it'd be easy for us to, to stop there and go, okay, what is maturity? Is it just being more independent? Is it us being more successful? Is it us being more nice, maybe well-adjusted, having ourselves in a good place? Maturity in the Bible is different than even what the maturity was for them because it says we're supposed to flee and pursue, verse 23. Two imperatives, two things we're supposed to do. Flee and pursue, practically, Fleeing means, it almost means like fight or flight, actually. <clears throat> Maybe where we got this. It, the Fleeing is a flight. It's a, a, a fearful awareness and running away. And actually pursue, the Greek here is for aiming at. It's hunting. It's going after. That we're supposed to be active in the way that we mature. There's an authenticity to it. And you know where it comes out of? It doesn't come to the fact that we can come to this table and act mature. It means that there's a seal set on us. Notice verse 19. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. A seal was an architectural term. It meant that there's an inscription. In a lot of these buildings, you can actually see one behind this screen right here. There's an inscription of what dorm it is or what building it is. And oftentimes it'll put the name of the architect or builder. This means that Christianity is different in this way. Instead of actually, instead of actually us maturing by trying to be well-adjusted, it's saying first you have to go back to this. You have to go back to, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. See, if you know whose relationship you're in, that seal, that thing that is set, it is a cornerstone usually set in the side of a building 
to remind you that your name is not your own. You bear the name of someone even greater than you that has set his love upon you, that has come to take you in and make you his. See, when we come to this table, it's a place of maturity because you can't take this table unless you know that seal is on you. You can't take this table as a ritual. You can't take this table to, to show yourself as maybe him a part of the group. We have to take this table as identifying with the one who has put his seal on us. Because right after it says, you need to cleanse yourself, right? Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. How in the world can you cleanse yourself? Unless you come to this table and realize that the Lord Jesus has to get in you. It's not enough to smell this table. It's not enough to come walk by it. We have to take it in. God has to do the work within us in order for us to go out. See, notice the reversal of truth. The Lord has to do what? Come in us to set that tether of truth so that we can go out and struggle and have difficulty and have disagreement. We have disagreements. Disagreements aren't bad. They're not sinful. It's the way that we go out in them. And how do we bring peace within them? This table isn't just that, and we can't fake it. Because here's what happens. You come to this table hungry, and you leave with what? A fullness. And here's the beauty of it. It's a mere appetizer of the fullness we will receive one day. We are proclaiming the Lord's death that he, he has come and he is driving us to the fulfillment of what is to come. And that is our hope. Let us live tethered in this. Let us flee from those things that so quickly cause us to be hot-tempered and run to and pursue what is ours in the seal of Christ Jesus, the blood that is yours. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took this bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, all of you do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he poured out the wine. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That is my blood of the new covenant. And that word covenant, again, remember, it means it's something stable, Covenant is something that's made. It's like what you watch in a wedding ceremony. God has wedded himself to you by shedding his own blood so that there's no way you can escape this relationship from him. By any of the disagreements, the difficulties that you have, you are moored, you are tethered to him by his love. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again.